Welcome back to part two of the inaugural episode of Village Podcast. I'm Morgan C. Jones. He's Michael Smith. Stay tuned for your regular dose of transparent political discussion, debate, and interviews. And don't forget you can find us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you walk your dog to just get out of the house for an hour. Visit villagemagazine.ie for all things village. So this is Frank Mulcahy. Thank you very much for coming in today for the Village podcast, Frank. Um, now I'm going to synopsize this in, in a couple of ways, but um, the first is pretty brutal. Um, the story here, uh, Frank's story, is that the state, led by Michal Martin, lied uh, over 25 years and in effect destroyed his life. Um, and the details of that are that, um, well, the, the nub of it is that Michal Martin, current Taoiseach, um, said he'd correct all statements he'd made implicating Frank years ago in fraud after the EU showed that far from committing the alleged fraud, that Frank had in fact been set up by uh, Michal Martin's department, the Department of Enterprise. Um, but um, Martin in the end didn't correct those those statements because uh, firstly he wanted to protect a party colleague who's now a, um, a county councillor who'd been central to the making of those allegations against Frank and secondly um, that Michal Martin and his department uh, wanted to protect the exchequer from a maladministration claim um, and in the end the state instigated an inquiry um, to investigate um, the whole uh, issue and that reported recently but because the terms of reference were um, fell very far short um, it didn't advance the, um, the, the state of knowledge um, to any significant extent. Now it's, a, it's a huge story with um, multiple uh, tangents. Uh, I'm particularly keen, it's one of my biggest frustrations, one of the stories we haven't managed to get much public traction for and I'm sure it's very frustrating I know it's been very frustrating for Frank dating back 25 years um, so it's a tale uh, of government of our time that says so much about um, the way government uh, operates and says a lot about the way the department um, interrelates with the politicians and also there's an EU angle on it so the story is how government destroyed an individual over 25 years indeed continues to. Um, so I'm just going to start by asking you, Frank, just tell us a little bit about your, um, about your background, I suppose, including where you were at the start of this 25 years ago. Well, uh, I was the chief executive uh, and founding director of the Irish Small and Medium Enterprises Association. Uh, we found that that, uh, after the four associated banks had failed in their endeavour to censor my criticisms of them, uh, is, is me, the, the association that I was associated with, um, uh, was phenomenally successful in terms of its financial revenue, but also politically. Uh, and uh, to such an extent that in 1997, some four years after it was established, the government approached some of the directors of ISME uh, to secure their cooperation with the social partnership process uh, 
which I uh, opposed for a variety of reasons. Uh, and that is what initially led to the decision of the directors of Ismeet to dismiss So there was hostility towards you because you were taking a view that uh, other powerful people in the organisation didn't think was appropriate on social partnership, the business of the employers um, engaging in, a, in a, an official process, or yes. particularly over wage, um, wages with the, uh, with the unions. So then... ISMI made allegations against you. What were they and who made them? Well, first of all, they, they approached me and asked me to resign with faxed uh, threats of accusing me of fraud if I didn't comply. Uh, at the same time, they offered me £100,000 as an inducement. Uh, I didn't think that people could accuse me of fraud uh, successfully where no fraud w- had occurred. And though in particular, um, a man called Seamus Butler, what was his role? Well, Seamus Butler was appointed by the original founders of ISME as the director on and the 11th of August uh, 1998, and on the 12th of August 1998, he received a fax from the original directors telling him to get on side with my removal. And then uh, the, the, there's, um, we exhibited in an article we published in the magazine um, threats um, where uh, Mr Butler um, threatened to ensure that you would never work again in this country and that he would make poor controls and management look like fraud. Isn't yeah, the, the, these aren't just allegations. Dramatic allegations. These were, these were threats that w- were made in writing at the time uh, and yet when brought to the attention of the guards, they were completely ignored. But they, they were, the allegations were primarily made by this man, Seamus Butler? Yes. And who? Uh, why would Seamus Butler have had it in for you, and where is he now? Well, Seamus, uh, well, there's there no explanation as to why Butler decided to go along with the uh, accusations, other than the fact that he was chairman and his position was threatened if he didn't Okay, so how, how did he implicate you in fraud? He, he uh, out of the blue, after making several allegations over a period of nine months, on the 5th of March 1999, uh, he unilaterally went to the, uh, the guards in Harcourt Square and accused me of defrauding the European Commission. I have no prior knowledge of that. I learnt of that the next day. Okay, so take us through what the substance of that was. What was the precise allegation about your um, the alleged fraud and the European Union? This is where it gets slightly complicated, but simply put, uh, according to Mr. Butler, I had defrauded the EU of £12,375 by virtue of the fact that the associated invoices had been unpaid at the time that they were submitted for payment to the Department of Enterprise, Trade and Employment. Okay, now you say that in fact the department was implicated in this having happened in the first place. It was something that you could, effectively something you couldn't have avoided. Isn't that correct? Well, what I say is first of all there was no money missing. Okay. Second of all, the department had actually prepared the application for payments of the grant. So from the outset the allegation made absolute no sense. So you, as far as you were concerned, you were completely compliant with the departmental um, since, recommendations since, as to how this should be handled. Since the department had prepared the application with the financial director of ISME and had approved, had approved the three unpaid invoices, there could be no fraud. Okay. So these allegations 
um, were forwarded to the DPP, isn't yes. that correct? Um, and can you t- tell me about the role of the Garda? What was the role of, in particular, Martin Callanan, the ch- former Chief Superintendent? Well, at this stage, Martin Callanan wasn't involved. Okay. At this stage, it was the Fraud Squad. The Fraud Squad were well aware that the allegations were contrived and vexatious because they had been provided with the documents and the evidence that there was no fraud. So what was that? What were those documents? Those documents were internal ISME documents which showed that the the accusation had been in the planning stage for some two years before they actually went to the, the fraud squad. And yet Mr. Butler was claiming that he had he had discovered it just uh, some two months before he uh, involved the guards. Okay, so tell us about the role of the guards then. The gar- the, well, at this stage... Um, it, it, our disposition was to trust the guards implicitly and explicitly. Uh, I was confident that rather than reporting me to the DPP because of the evidence that Mr. Butler would be the one that was... Uh, and what would, the, what, what would he have been reported for? For setting you up? For, for making vexations okay, so and wasting guard. So how did the guards do with each of those separately? Well, they well they just ignored them. They reported me to the DPP, and they didn't. They didn't report Mr. Butler. They to didn't the DPP. report. That just died a death with no. no well, it it it, it the the by virtue of the guards having made a report to the DPP, I was deemed to be somewhat culpable because that report by the guards gave Mr. Butler's allegations some credence. And what? But but what happened to the report? The, the DPP didn't pursue the report, but however, Ismay decided that uh, there was there was um, evidence of fraud on my part solely by virtue of the report to the DPP. So they made the mistake of assuming that. Um a report that was submitted to find out whether charges should be taken against you, even though the report was in the end decided to not justify charges against you, yes. was somehow inculpatory and damning of you. Well, they didn't make a, a mistake. That was their intention. That was their intention. And not only that, when I went to the guards and asked them to give me a letter stating that I was innocent of the charges, Chief Superintendent Austin McNally uh, stated that we didn't find you innocent, we just didn't get the evidence to prosecute. But that's not the way um, the system works. You're innocent until proven guilty. Well, unfor- an- well that, that may be the way that should be the system, but in fact I was deemed to be culpable. I was dismissed and I was rendered unemployed. So tell me, tell me about the role of Martin Callanan. In the, in well, Martin Callanan didn't get involved until 2005 uh, after I discovered that the Department of Enterprise, Trade and Employment had actually told the guards in their original statement that there was no basis to the allegation. So, so having acquired those internal memos from, uh, from the Department of Enterprise, Trade and Employment, I asked to see Martin Callanan. I presented him with that memo. He dismissed it. As so you should have been off the hook on the basis that the department that had been so central to the instigation of this thing against you in the first place was now saying that, you, that, that, that you'd done no wrong. Correct. So, and you'd have expected that the commissioner would have would would, would have well, you, been supportive. The year the year before I approached Mr. Callanan, uh, several questions had. In fact, on five separate dates in 2004, the issue had been raised in Doyle Erden by three different deputies, very prominent deputies, and on each occasion, the Minister for Enterprise, Trade, and Employment latterly. Michal Martin. I just want to focus on, on okay. the guards for the moment. Well, back to well what I'm saying is the yeah. guards were on a hiding to nothing in 2005 because if they had to- if they had accepted the logic of the internal memo that I presented them, they would then have damned 
the Secretary General and the Minister for Enterprise, Trade and Employment. So he was on a, a hiding to This is Mr. Kalman. This is Martin Kalman. And so what so did he do? Martin Kalman uh, initiated a, an internal inquiry as to, as to the original investigation by the guards. Uh, and he, he, he appointed... This uh, is the investigation of you as a police. This, is, this yes. is an internal guard investigation of my complaint against Mr. Butler, that mm -hmm. Mr. Butler's allegation was vexatious, contrived and false. Uh, so, so and that, what, and uh, what, what did Cannon lead you to believe? Well, Cannon led me to believe... Well, first of all, he stated that, that having reviewed the files, he was of the opinion that the allegation was merited. But his investigation—the the, the, the allegation, the against, first allegation against Mr. Butler. No, the allegation against me. Against you. Yes. Okay. So what he was now going to do, having having made that statement, he then undertook, out of the sense of fairness, he said, to investigate the memo and the evidence which I contended showed that Mr. Butler was at fault. Okay. This was a, this was years after the thing had been. This was in nineteen. This is five so years. It's extraordinary. He shouldn't probably have been involved in, 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 in that process anyway. As a as the Garda commissioner, it was strange that he'd get involved in reviewing a file that had already Correct. been dealt with, gone all the way through the process. Correct. But but I am now questioning the parliamentary. I, I didn't realise how important it was at the time. But effectively, I was questioning the record of Doyle Aaron, which had endorsed it, the Garda denial. Okay. So just finish up with then what Martin Callan he, he compromised himself. And, 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 and what he said to you? Well, not at that stage. Uh, he later, when when I got further evidence, uh, damning evidence from the from the chief accountant to the European Commission, namely Brian Gray, uh, which confirmed that the allegations, which confirmed in writing that the allegations were not only false. This is the allegations against you. Yes. That not only was that allegation false, but that the culpable party was the Department of Enterprise, Trade and Employment. Okay. Uh, so when Martin, when I when I when I acquired that uh, e that letter in January two thousand and nine, uh, Martin Callanan then lied by sending me two e two letters in quick succession, claiming that his investigation had been completed and had resulted in a second file going to the DPP, which was a complete and utter fabrication. Which is untrue. Okay, very good, very clear. Um, so what was the role of the EU in nailing you and then exonerating you in all of this? Well, at the time of the parliamentary questions in 2004, uh, the, the European Commission, coinciding exactly with Michal Martin's parliamentary replies, Two hours before Michal Martin's parliamentary replies, the European Commission, at the level of the Director General, sent me an email telling me that I was culpable of the allegation. And then later the EU was helpful in exonerating you? Well, it was only helpful when I trapped the European Commission uh, with the help of a, 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 a British MEP, when I trapped him with a significant lie uh, and let him know that some of the middle-ranking officials in the Department of Finance were briefing against him. He then came forward in a two-page letter and for the first time explained that it was the department uh, that had systemically okay. mattered. So, so after years of frustration, you've got a foot in the door. There's a wedge here from the European Commission that is in some way corroborating you. So how did you attempt to ram home the truth that the allegations weren't true? 
Well, I went, I went to every politician that was available to me. Uh, I, went to the, I went back to the guards with the evidence. So it might be useful then to tell me how particular um, politicians ha- handled that. So let, let's start with um, Micheál Martin. Well, uh, in, t- in, in 2012, my, uh, I met Micheál Martin with two other business people, uh, a, a former chairman of ISME, Don Curry, and a director of, um, um, I just can't remember the football club he is, yeah. but a director of one of the major football clubs, um, Thomas Hines. Uh, at that meeting, uh, representing Fianna Fáil, were uh, obviously Micheál Martin as the responsible minister. And what I understood... In, in the key department, there's a, there's the, 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 the main thing here is the department, even more than the various ministers down the years, is the role of the department in damning you and then not taking responsibility and then not making any effort to exonerate you up to date. Well, worse than that, they actually lied and lied and lied again, the department. The department actually carried out, in response to the initiative of Rory Quinn, a two-month investigation of the files and concluded that the allegation was justified. So it wasn't an accident. This was sustained effort to conceal the fact that the cup of a party... And why did they not deal with the EU's exoneration? How did they deal with that? Why did the department not take that as gospel? Well, the department knew what uh, what Brian Gray said was true, but but at this stage they couldn't afford... I presume they couldn't afford to tell the truth. By virtue, first of all, that it showed how... uh, how, how exploitative they were of the democratic process of the parliamentary chamber to validate their lies. Uh, and secondly... So it was a, an, too appalling a vista to take responsibility for the years of lies perpetrated by so many officials yeah. and so many ministers. Correct. So and, they didn't do that. And, and, and also there was an issue... And secondly, of, yeah. they, 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 it is possible that if they told the truth, because they had lied not only to me but to the European Commission, if they told the truth to the European Commission, the financial threat that is recorded of minimally 400 million So explain pounds. that. The, the, what, 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 well, what because they had systemically maladministered the, the European funds that they had acquired in the very sizable European funds, some 9 billion that was acquired by Ireland in 1994, because they had systemically maladministered... Was that the Albert Reynolds? That's the Albert Reynolds-Edinburgh yeah. Summit. Mm. Uh, a phenomenal amount of money because they had systemically mal- and the European Union found that they'd systemically maladministered this. yes that's uh, and does that enter the public domain that document that do- that document and that finding never entered the public domain so Until- you were the victim of that that's partly people were so concerned to keep that admittedly phenomenal finding out of the um, out of the public domain that you were the sacrificial lamb. lamb. Yes, but, but that was one reason. But secondly, it was how they avoided that penalty. They, uh, that they wanted essentially to keep uh, concealed uh, because they had because they had retrospectively applied the rules that they hadn't applied they had retrospectively applied them back to 1994. Secondly, they were concerned to avoid the resurrection of the potential penalty, uh, a significant penalty of close to £1 billion because of the way they had avoided that penalty by lying to the European Commission and applying new audit rules in from 2001 retrospective to 1994. And those rules... 
So also affected you. Those were the, those were the rules that had, that, that had resulted in a plausible claim, that, although untrue claim of fraud being made against yeah, you. So they were linked. That retrospective process validated the allegation against me. And once they had done that, they couldn't draw back from it because. So the process of validating you also uh, put the state on the hook. Yes, it, 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 it their, 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 their cover-up so, 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 was grotesque. So again, it was too appalling a vessel. So you were the victim. The reason that your life has been and damaged so much is because you faced two appalling vistas, a department that didn't want to take responsibility for repeated lying and a department that, and a country that didn't want to open up this business of a finding of maladministration. Yes. Probably the biggest finding of maladministration in the history of the state that remains unreported. I, mean, I have, uh, I have, a, I have a, a report here. And why is the European Union not insisted that that finding enter the public domain? Because the, because the European Union had been complicit with uh, the Department of Enterprise, Trade and Employment up to, up to the time that Brian Gray revealed the So truth. what should the European Commission have done? Well, logically, what they were required to do was to recoup the monies that had been maladministered. And what, the the, what, have the ministers been admi- what have the monies been administered on? Uh, all training grants training and, and uh, infrastructure. So you had involved there the European Regional Development Fund, the European Regional Social Fund, and primarily the cohesion. And how have they been mal- maladministered? Well, I will just give you one example. This report, which has never seen the light of day, and which if you ask... And if, serious, if the mainstream media had any appetite for this stuff, they would be crawling all over because it's such a crucial well, document in well, terms of administration uh, of They should now, finances. and they should, they should when I originally... Yeah. drew their attention to yeah, it yeah. back in 2008-9. But this, this report says that the Irish uh, Department of Finance uh, overlapped in its drawing down of European funds. And the, that's code, the word overlap is code for double charging. So, okay. th- so there was a significant penalty being faced by the Irish authorities for, as we've already referred to, the systemic maladministration, part of which was the overlapping. So presumably there are people in departments and ministers who regard this as a great triumph, that we avoided um, taking a, a, a huge penalty and a huge hit. They have actually so that's, that's one way of looking at it, that it was a you know, triumph of, 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 uh, of politics that we avoided. But the problem yes. is that you were the fall guy. Yes. So I want you to just go back, because um, this is complex, but I think you've explained it well. Just again, go back to the role of Micheál Martin and, and a few of the most egregious ministers then and their, their, their roles in, in, in well, failing to, 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 to in, ensure in, that your in, position as I say, was recognised. In March 2012, after a period of communication and exchange of documents with Michal Martin and Deirdre Galan, we were invited... Who, who, who's his um, conciliar? Who, which I didn't realise at the time was, uh, was of such importance. Uh, we were invited to meet Michal in Leinster House. Because he had put on the record um, statements damning you. Yes. And he wanted, as a decent politician, to correct the record. That's what I understood we were doing. And when I met him, he was full of sincerity. Uh, he was angry that he had been lied to by his officials, in, in his own words. And uh, Deirdre Galan was taking minutes that he was reflecting his anger. Well, first of all, he asked Deirdre Galan to confirm that he had been lied to uh, by the official. Now, I didn't understand at the time. I was saying, why would a secretary be asked to lie? I didn't realise that she was effectively his chief of staff yes. in the department back in 2004. It wasn't until 
too much later than Derek O'Leary. A very important and well-regarded yes, um, absolutely. public servant. Yes, uh, absolutely. A pivotal person in the Fianna Fáil party. So, and and uh, we, we had discussed with him the role of Seamus Butler, the businessman, um, who at that stage I did, was unaware, was connected to the Fianna Fáil, was there, uh, then a, 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 the Fianna Fáil leader of the Longford County Council. And at the end of that meeting, I was still unaware of his significance. Okay, so Micheál Martin at the beginning of the meeting w- w- was well disposed towards... Um, taking responsibility for the lies of his department and, and, and his role in, in, in perpetuating those lies, but then he failed to deliver, isn't that well, correct? Well disposed is putting it mildly. He was, right, he was himself, according he was to right. himself, yeah. vividly angry okay. uh, uh, or, uh, and livid at what had happened. Uh, and so how, how did this collapse then? How, how, how did it emerge that it, well, he wasn't... Well, I uh, just to say that six weeks later we were about to go to Brussels, myself and Don Curry, to discuss these matters again and he sent Derek Cleary out to double down on his commitment and in that process we then learned to yeah. the important role of... Still on board uh, at that stage. Yes. Uh, and then without some six months later in about no- October, November 2012 we received a letter from Michal Martin saying that he'd been in touch with the Department of Enterprise, Trade and Employment and they'd assured him that the Ombudsman had comprehensively investigated the evidence and f- exonerated the Department and Michal Martin. So we were shocked at that and we approached... Which was a strange thing to say because he should have made his own mind up or whatever the Ombudsman on the strength of what you had said, which was definitive. Well, not just on what I said, but on the documents I'd given. On the documentation to yourself. So so aware of that, we wrote back to Michal Martin and and suggested that he asked the Ombudsman to confirm it, but Mm -hmm. he he declined to do that. Uh, So he was trying to get himself off the hook and... and, 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 um, well, he passed uh, a book. Exculpating himself. He said yeah. that the ombudsman had, had got him off the hook and then he failed to back it up. And the ombudsman then denied that... that, that well, that, that, then it took three years to get the ombudsman to deny that he had investigated the evidence that we had presented. And you think that Michal Martin perpetuated these lies and failed to act on his commitment to uh, write them um, because of departmental inertia, the, the, the usual stuff about not wanting to take responsibility when, you, when, you're, you know, when you're in... So deep, but but also because perhaps he had a um, the 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 author of your da- downfall, the the person who'd made the most aggressive allegations of fraud against you, was now a senior member of his party. In, yes, in well, he was all, he was he was he was getting ahead of the posse because you had several other prominent politicians, saying, including Rudy Quinn and Bertie Ahern and, and Brian Hayes and a number of MEPs, all saying they were go- uh, endeavouring to have the Doyle record correct. So where does it stand now with Michal Martin? Well, we're jumping ahead now very much, but let's, let me for the moment just say his Doyle record continues to, to propagate untruths, which did, have done significant and continue to do significant damage to me. OK, and what about um, the role of um, Richard Bruton? Well... This is what, it, what is interesting. So me, having met Michal Martin and he having said that the officials had lied to him, he then relied on those officials to exculpate him nine months later. But that letter was signed by Richard Bruton. Who was uh, a former minister. Who was a former in, in minister. Of and, uh, so at, the, at that time, we just thought uh, Michal Martin was a, a third, uh, sorry, Richard Bruton was a further victim of his officials. Mm. But now I realise, from what I learned subsequently, having been directed by a retired 
civil servant, mm. by the way. Uh, uh, when I was explaining my d dilemma over, yeah. over Richard Bruton's uh, uh, position, he told me to go and look at who was the Minister for Enterprise, Trade and Employment at the time of the successful negotiation of the, or soon after the negotiation of the Edinburgh summit. And of course I've now realised... So he had a, he had a dog in the Richard fight. Bruton was the Minister in the four years when we commenced to systemically maladminister EU funds. Okay. Tell me about um, the role of Leo Varadkar. Again, we're, we're jumping way ahead of ourselves, but if I, if I go back to 2017, uh, the Ombudsman writes and says, no, I didn't exonerate uh, Micheál Martin or, the, or any Minister for Enterprise, Trade and Employment. I didn't look at the evidence. Because of that, we then I then made a data act request to Fianna Fáil asking for the records but I was particularly wanted the minute of the meeting where Micheál Martin had admitted and blamed his officials. Uh, so we didn't get a reply uh, from Fianna Fáil so I had, um, I had the data protection commissioner uh, directly uh, demand that, that, um, that uh, Fianna Fáil reply. That led to the peculiar designation in 2020, while he was Taoiseach, the peculiar designation by Fianna Fáil of the Taoiseach, in their words, as the Fianna Fáil data controller for the matter in question. So here you had the Taoiseach of the day being appointed by Deirdre Galan. Who is, who is his inferior who, who, in the political system yes, in the spectrum. Who, who, for her minutes, she appoints the Taoiseach as the data think, controller. What was the significance of that? Well, I, I can only surmised that they thought that the data protection commissioner wouldn't pursue it. Because of this Because of the status of the teacher. deference to the teacher. Yeah. Okay, so I'm, I'm because we're... You asked me where Leo Varadkar... So, uh, so when, when that designation was made by Deirdre Galan, we asked the data protection commissioner to ask uh, the teacher to release the minute. Uh, that took some nine months, but it, and uh, of course he would have been worried that if he had released, if he had denied the minutes, uh, he, he could have been scuppered by the department releasing the files. So it wasn't until uh, Leo Varadkar uh, got involved and advised that he was keeping the files closed, which by the way had been closed since 2004. Mm which were closed originally by me, Al Martin. And so, 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 so Radcar has been a, 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 a supporter of openness and, and he was very helpful in the Morris McCabe um, case yeah, in particular. I, so you might have hoped that he would have, that he well, would have, that he would I have was, opened up the I was very aware that, uh, that disgusting had become, at one stage, distinguished. Yeah. And now we seem to have reverted back to disgusting. Yes. In other words, the, the truth. Okay. So um, tell us about the government inquiry. Uh, well, in 2014, both Rory Quinn and Bertie former, Ahern, former leader of the Labour Party, uh, former leader of the Labour Party, and at the time minister for uh, minister in the government, yes, uh, being outraged that having asked Richard Bruton for access to the files and being refused, he both uh, Quinn and Ahern wrote to the Taoiseach and asked that the Doyle record as a first step mm. be corrected. Uh, and that led to the creation of, that led to my complaint being referred, in its totality, being referred to the Independent Review Commission. Which is a standard process for dealing with scandals. Well, it wasn't a standard practice. It was an initiative of Enda Kenny as a result of the high-profile campaign run by uh, Claire Daly. Um, 
so the, that was an initiative comprising of 10 barristers, junior and senior, who were reviewing all cases of potential miscarriage of justice. There were 300 cases. Five of them involved a murder or a death of some sort, mm. excluding those five. Of the 300 cases that were referred to the team of barristers, mm. only mine was recommended for a statutory inquiry. Okay. And that statutory inquiry commenced in May 2017. Very With very little reportage? Well, with, very, with no reportage. Uh, and, oh sorry, with... It was reported by RTE on the yeah. nine o'clock news okay. by Dave Murphy. Okay. Uh, that, but, but, but almost nowhere else. When, correct. Uh, that uh, inquiry commenced in May 2017. Uh, in the preliminary uh, meetings with the judge, uh, the judge at one stage turned to me and said, Mr. Mulcahy, you will be unhappy with the outcome. Mm. And turned to the state solicitor's office and said that you will be happy. Mm. And the reason for that is he explained that his terms of reference prohibited him from ex- uh, uh, investigating my well, terms of complaint. reference, again, as always were crucial. What, were the ter- what did the terms of reference focus on? The terms of reference stated that he could not examine any matters that had been previously referred to the uh, Garda Ombudsman Commission. And what did it focus on then? It focused on a number of minor irrelevant issues, one of them being the fact that Martin Callanan had placed a, uh, a an imposition on my emails. Okay. Um, so which, which and, and Julie then found um, in the last six months that Martin Cannon had uh, interdicted your emails that they could no longer be received by yes. the guard, but didn't it? That had lasted, uh, well, that was important because it prevented me from communicating. But, but it didn't get to grips with the fundaments of, of No, no, of it, the, it, was, it was in a one just, sense... Just to, re, just to restate the fundaments of the issue, the, the, just what would you like that inquiry to have looked at? The inquiry would have looked at uh, the role of the exploitation of the parliamentary process by the civil servants to validate untruths, the the consequences of which were damning for me. Uh, And which particular untruths? The particular untruths that I was culpable of defrauding the EU, whereas the the culpable party, to a very uh, significant uh, extent, was both the Department of Finance and the Department of Finance. So where does it stand now? What it stands now is that uh, we have written constantly in the last few months to Michal Martin uh, and the various Fianna Fáil deputies that he sent out to corroborate his lies. I've seen the unbelievable wide range of people that you are writing to and your attempts to get it into the media and it's all very impressive. There are 50 different tangents and, and, and stories that merit investigation but it seems that many people are set against it and it's going nowhere for the moment. So the, the purpose of this interview is to try to reignite or to ignite an issue that has been festering for 25 years and is one of the biggest scandals that affects the whole of the political process, including the state's relations with the well, EU. Can I just, I mean, in Ireland, I've, as, as a business lobbyist, uh, I had quickly formed the opinion that I could go into a department and meet senior officials and win every debate with those officials and not get anywhere unless they read it in the papers. Okay. 
Okay. Uh, so the, 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 the role of the Forta state is critical to establishing the facts in Ireland. And your case illustrates that. Just very briefly then, tell me about the role, the respective role of the media and maybe tell me about the roles of the Irish Times, Irish Independent and RTE. Well, the, the best thing I can do there is to say that, uh, that uh, Minister Quinn was of the opinion that we should involve the press in this affair. When was that? This was in, when we met him, the best way I can, I can address that is to say that we were encouraged by the Minister for Education, Rory Quinn, to involve the press because he, as Minister, as a serving Minister, was at the loggerheads with his fellow Cabinet, um, uh, Richard Bruton, who was refusing uh, the Minister for Education access to the files that were the responsibility. Okay, so you went to the press. Who did you go to? Well, I, I've been to the press on numerous occasions, but for... Tell me about your treatment in RTE. Well, we spent some nine months in uh, researching and putting together uh, a, a file which I understood that RTE were going to do a programme on, uh, primarily because Minister Quinn had... Put his name to it. He was I put his name to it. Not corner. only that, but he had gone and met the senior officials in RT with a view to uh, putting a program when where he would have explained how he was in the when, when was this? This was in 2014. When okay. His so last year. What happened to the program? The, the, um, I was told that RT decided that I would have a panic attack in the process and that in any event the program would cost him 250000 to put together. And on that basis they decided. And to who told it. you that? Uh, members of Rory Quinn's inner cabinet, okay. who, who were party to those negotiations. And anything else? Any other treatment? Well, also, I mean, uh, well, RTE in 2007 had uh, undertaken to run a programme, uh, had initiated uh, contact with the Department of the Taoiseach, and asked the Taoiseach, the Department of the Taoiseach, in the name of Michael Sludds, who was a, one of the teaching close spokespersons, uh, had asked him, was there any truth in what I said about uh, retrospective audit process and uh, the systemic maladministration of European funds? And they were told that there was, uh, wasn't an iota of truth in it. And on that basis, the programme that they... Pro- Which programme was that? This was a Today Tonight. Today Tonight. OK, and what about the Irish Times? Well, Irish Times, uh, again, I had provided... Um, the Irish Times senior journalists, uh, particularly Colm uh, Keena, uh, with hard evidence of wrongdoing by the Department of Enterprise, Trade and Employment, of audits being changed. When was this? I provided that evidence to him in 2012, 2013. And did he lead you to believe that the Irish Times would do a splash on it? Well, I, I, absolutely, because some, because one of his colleagues had asked to run the story, and I said, no, Colm is doing it, let Colm run the story. Uh, but that never appeared. But subsequently, subsequently, Rory Quinn uh, rang him, uh, and they had a discussion uh, uh, about the culpability of the Department of Enterprise, Trade and Employment. This was explicit, tangible evidence that was being provided mm to the Irish time by a government minister, a leader With of the Labour Party, yeah. and uh, yet that story was buried, never saw the light of day. And was there any explanation given? No. Um, and the Irish Independent? Irish Independent, well, uh, they, they have declined to engage with me for 
some several years. They initially they had been very supportive of me back in when the charges were made by mm -hmm. Mr. Butler. But once the report was made to the DPP. So why do you think the media are blacking you, and um, what do you make of the media generally? Well, I, 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 I'm, I am absolutely in a quandary as regards why the extraordinary evidence, which just by the way they they, they changed to the uh, the the, um, the the systemic maladministration. I was the only one that was reported that the DPP had lost his job, but they but. Other people were affected. Other recipients of state aid were allowed to take the blame. Now, in my case, it was particularly damaging. Other people suffered. By some, who, who were well, Chambers Ireland was accused of systemic uh, of maladministering European funds. The CEA, the CEO, there was compelled to resign, and now he he got employment uh, elsewhere. Who else? Uh, rehab, rehab were uh, egregiously dragged European through the court, squealing that they didn't know why they were being dragged through the European mm -hmm. court. By the way, the the uh, senior counsel at that stage was Paul Gallagher, who is currently the Attorney General. Uh, when he was the Attorney General... And why, why have we not heard, why have the press not covered the positions of, 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 of rehab? Well, rehab issued a statement uh, when they were judged to be culpable by the European courts. And they said, they, 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 they expressed their quandary as to how they could be culpable when the department uh, said they did, did everything same, right. Same position. And nobody took it up. Okay, so just then finally, um, where do you see this thing going? Um, well, I'm going nowhere except I'm going to continue to prosecute this. To, the, to my best effect, people say, "Why didn't you take? Why didn't you initiate legal uh, legal proceedings?" Well, on the one hand, in 2010, when Rory Quinn got involved in a very detailed way, he made a commitment that if I for, swore the legal route, he would have the department uh, issue a meaningful apology and make compensation for the damage that was done to me. Now he tried, and I, and I don't. I don't decry his, dec he tried his best, but the officials got the better of him. Okay. Uh, all, uh, the, uh, then the statute of limitation ran out, and of course I haven't worked in 20 years, so I, so I was effectively skinned, I didn't have the money. And I haven't found a lawyer yet who was prepared to offer a pro bono service okay. to me. Okay, Frank, thank you very much. Proving that not all heroes wear capes. Um, one of the biggest scandals that, had the, that has had the most dramatically um, surprising small amount of attention from the media, a scandal that's now been going on for 25 years, and we, let's hope that um, the political process finally gets to grips with it. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Vanessa, thank you so much for coming in today to do the Village podcast. Um, so just start by telling us a little bit about yourself and your background and your qualifications. Mm -hmm. uh, well, I, my background is I'm an accountant and uh, um, I'm a, an insolvency practitioner as well. And I tend to specialise more in, in bankruptcy and um, I'm generally sort of a part-time writer as well. Okay, and you write for Village occasionally and sometimes for Broadsheet and elsewhere? Yes. So you've written a piece, um, we're going to talk a little bit about this piece that you've written in the last edition of um, Village and um, essentially the it's a complex story. Um, I'm not sure that I have my um, 
mind in my head around the thing which isn't ideal given that I edited it but um, the story is about how Bank of Ireland opened the gateway to private equity mm -hmm. in Ireland um, led by future Trump acolyte um, Wilbur Ross who is Trump's um, Secretary for Commerce um, and how Bank of Ireland's failure to make its, ac its accounts as clear as they should be let Wilbur Ross and other very informed people in and that as a result of that Ireland was morphed into becoming a fertile habitat for cuckoos and vulture funds mm -hmm. etc. It's quite a mean allegation to make Vanessa but it's um, wide ranging and you've sustained it in your, in your piece and then the big thing I think that I've had difficulty um, comprehending is uh, your theory is that nobody read the account the accounts or that the accounts weren't properly read um, the Bank of Ireland accounts when it was in trouble uh, when was that well I, I think you could probably go back to 2006 2007 but the accounts weren't properly read from that that era and in particular you've said that the accounts didn't point the reader to receipts but only to impairments and losses that that's is that the nub of the of the allegation we'll come back to that so one thing I'm hoping um, from this podcast is that by the end of the interview that everyone will understand uh, what that means, even people who don't like accountancy will understand what the de deficiency in the accounts uh, was or why they, weren't, um, why they weren't clear. So we're determined to get to the bottom of this. Um, but anyway, the thrust of the story is that because our decision makers, um, government regulators, never did the due diligence that the private equity funds um, did the they themselves did the, t the, the tricky deep background research that earned them the leverage to buy what was in the end 21% of Bank of Ireland from Michael Noonan for as little as 10 cents a share to then sue Bank of Ireland and to get a ministerial U-turn uh, removing un unintended constraints on their profits and as a result of that they made money on such a scale and so easily that a whole wave of follow-up vultures and cuckoos came in thinking that this was fertile um, territory. Well, I think we kind of have to bring it back a bit to... Yeah, uh, so we'll, we'll start with... We'll look at it historically, I think, from, from, from that. Those are the big... And you can, you can, you can come back and, and, and refine those. But just... Um, so t take us through... Um, so NAMA was the... Which is the bad bank, of course, which took on the bad debts of, 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 of um, banks so they could detoxify themselves and present themselves properly to people they needed to present them to, including the regulators and those who decide how much money you can lend in the future and so on. Um, the, so in, in, in 2009, you have the introduction of NAMA and Bank of Ireland had to decide what of, which of its distressed assets it would, it would, it would put into NAMA. Well, I, I suppose you could start it from there. Um, they, they put together a bundle of loans, which were largely commercial loans. Um, they, the commercial loans generally would be you know, the bigger ticket loans, the seven-figure loans, not domestic properties or family homes. So they put together a bundle that they announced in September 2009 of 12 billion. Which 12 billion. 12 billion, sorry. <laughs> well, when you're talking about millions of billions, How many it's, zeros is that? it's hard to stay on track. And so this was the asset that they had decided was going to go to NAMA, be sold to NAMA. And by the time it went um, on its way to NAMA and was settled out, it, it was just over 5 billion is what they got from NAMA. So just to clarify, so they sold assets and there were, th I suppose there are three things regarding the valuation of those, that asset. What the assets were worth initially when the economy was in full health, 
how much they got for it when the economy wasn't in full health and maybe there's a third thing with it which is how much they actually should have got for it um, when the economy wasn't in full health and they they, 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 they sold them so what would you say what's your well, I, just I in br- very broad terms in terms of billions what would you say roughly and I know that some of this has to be speculation well no there we, we some of it is speculation but you, you're also giving guides to what that 12 billion might have been when it was drawn down and I think there's a public right to know about how much these loans were because we did guarantee them and it's also where um, commission was calculated um, but also you, we're given guides we're told what the percentage was in impairments and uh, st- standard bad debt provision so I, I I floated the figure of 40 billion on this 16 billion so when so just to clarify this is what it was worth at the height yeah, when the loans were drawn when they, down, when, they were when drawn the down. bank signed the lending agreement to... In happy power. times, in happy yeah, times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In, 40 in billion. I sold for 40 12. 40 billion is so, the number I'm floating at. Okay, sold for 12. Well, no, they valued it at 12. Okay. When they created this for uh, an asset for sale, they valued it at 12 billion. But by the to- as those accounts were being declared year after year... It, that 16 billion was rapidly declining in value on the balance sheet and this is where um, the vultures saw the opportunity okay okay and w- you mentioned about um, not uh, reading the accounts properly I think there's also a balance in that is that people didn't challenge the accounts properly so, so, so how did how did Bank of Ireland present this issue of the of, of the different valuations they in in their accounts they they presented it as the impairments and when you match impairments impairments against the asset held for sale and so you would go you would have to go up and down the notes and the report and the various commentaries and the various chapters to actually stitch it together and the the best the best um, sort of indicator for any user of the accounts was always to go to the notes where there would be a specific table showing the asset as held for sale of the 16 billion originally and each of the impairments over the years that hit it. So explain what you mean by impairments. Impairments is when they see the a loan or an asset. Um, consider the loan book as a fleet of cars okay and the fleet of cars are worth 16 billion I know that's a stretch but then let's just say um, one of the cars catches on fire. So that 16 billion has to be adjusted for one of those cars, okay? So you, you hit us with these impairments along the way. So suddenly these loans were not, are the securities under these loans, remember they were commercial loans, so maybe there was a massive sum of money paid for, to a farmer for land that they thought they could squeeze a thousand houses on, and then in the heel of the hunt then it was discovered that you know it was actually a bog and they wouldn't get any planning mm. on it. So instead of, instead of it being worth like eight, 12 million, it was only worth a few hundred thousand in agricultural valuation. Mm. So these were the impairments. I, I suspect, obviously I, d- don't go down, I didn't go down through these, but that's, that's what I would um, imagine as somebody who was a former financial controller myself, that these are the type of things you would see against a loan that you think you've a secured asset against that is no longer worth what you're quoting it in your balance sheet. Okay, so who, the, the auditors in those early days were PWC, so what more could they have done? Well, you see, 
But it's hard to it's hard really to blame auditors as well because I mean they sign off accounts and they are the auditors for Bank of Ireland PwC yes, but also they are hired by the shareholders. Their contract is renewed every year at AGM. But they have an intrinsic obligation to 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 transcend. Well, you would think they would have a, an intrinsic obligation, but you don't think they'd have a professional obligation to conduct themselves like chartered accountants. But are you saying you're saying that the information was spread all over the accounts and difficult to divine? But was it all there? It was there, yeah. Except for what I, for me, what I took great issue with was when the, that sixteen billion was eventually taken all out permanently of the balance sheet and sold complete the sale was completed as such to NAMA was the value of the entire sale price was not recorded as income into the 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 P L or the income statement. So what was the effect of the confusion in the accounts? Um, did it did it affect the share price? It, 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 it affected the, 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 the price that um that Wilbur Ross was able to buy in at. Well, you see, Wilbur Ross argues that um, the the shares that they bought in in that group of five from Michael Noonan, he argues. When you that say the group of five, it was five people with the, with, with Wilbur. Well, you see, the, these these investors were buying in the run up to the purchase from from the the state's um, ownership tranche as such. Okay, so they had already acquired uh, about 13, 14 percent between them. This is Wilbur Ross and a number of big funds. And a number of, it's a very significant funds. Um, name, name some of them. Um, well, there was um, Fairfax and Kennedy Wilson and uh, Capital and um, So how, 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 how had they got the insight that they could see essentially that there was a bargain there? Well, I think they did, but I, I also think that but if, if you look at sort of Wilbur Ross's um, professional history, he was always seen as going into sort of co- bad companies and finding the value and extracting it out of there. But by the time he um, made his big bids, was he, was he um, on the board? No. But he, but, he, but he was given privileged access well, to, you see, to, 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 to do due diligence. Well, yeah, but you see, when when that placement, when the when Michael Noonan put up that it, it a bunch of shares for sale, it was a private placement. So they they put they purchased that a, a group of five of uh, funds purchased twenty point nine percent from that bunch that batch of shares the the Irish taxpayer owned. Okay. Um, but Wilbur Ross argues that anyone could have bought it because it was put, it was placed through brokers. So anyone could have bought it. That's what he says. So in order for them to kind of do that, they would be required by their own boards, by the way, of each of these companies to do due diligence. So there were findings made. There was a big investigation in the American magazine, Mother Jones, looking into the possibility of insider trading. Isn't that, that right? <laughs> Well, that came out when um, Wilbur Ross started to sell. That was two years after okay. when he started to sell because when, when this sale completed, um, they, between the five funds, have had 30, just, just over 35% of Bank of Ireland. Mm. So that gives them enormous um, voting power, but it also allowed them argue and agree two, ex- two seats for them. 
on the Bank of Ireland board. That was Wilbur Ross and another? Uh, yeah, Prem Watson from okay. Fairfax. So when, when that happened, so they got the seats on the board. So to sit on the board of a bank in Ireland, you have to be approved by the central bank for a start. And the shareholders have to approve your remuneration every year. So they did all this. And it was perfectly clear in the, in the annual reports that neither Wilbur Ross or Prem Watsa were independent. Okay. It, it was stated there, so everyone saw it. So from that point of view, um, people were making decisions based on information that was out there. It was all there. So, and what, how, how, might the, they've handled, how might they have been more suspicious? What ethical issues are posed by this? Well, I think the, the, the more important issue has to do with governance in that you, ha you clearly had directors on the board that were not independent. And that's one of the, the biggest weaknesses in, in Irish companies. And how did they advance themselves then? Because they were able to argue uh, for seats on the board from the minister who makes those appointments effectively. Okay, so do you, would you criticise Michael Noonan's role in this? Oh, absolutely. He didn't do, he didn't do his own homework. People are very critical that Wilbur Ross and these five other four were able to do due diligence on accounts and they have the expertise to find where the holes were. I would say they found the value that they were looking for. They knew what they were looking for. But, you know, the Department of Finance and Michael Noonan and all, all these, you know, even the auditors, they should have done the due diligence as well and valued the shares better. Instead of selling them for in and around the 10 cent, when they could have got 30 cent, okay. why didn't they do the due diligence? That's and what, what would, I what would they have uncovered if they'd done the due diligence that would have suggested the value is 30, not 10? Well, it, it depends on what, what they were, the, how the due diligence was completed. What were they looking for? Were they looking for holes in the accounts or were they looking at the assets and the loan assets and seeing better value there for their, for their businesses than for you know, managing a, a bank? I mean, Wilbur Ross and all these people, they don't want to run businesses. Mm. They want to own, they want to make money, they want to get out. They do not want to manage businesses. They had no interest in running a bank. And so in the end, how much did they get out for when they sold their shares? Well, I, I'll speak for the Wilbur Ross one because that's the, the one that's more commonly repeated. And I think that's actually when Wilbur Ross sold his first batch of shares, um, you know, when it was all combined, he made over half a billion in, in his disposal after just under three years. But the thing is that when he, when he sold, he, he moved on. He sold his shares, and there is this suggestion that he had that he had information, but there's also the the reality is that Bank of Ireland were also facing the ECB investigation, and that was public knowledge, you know, and it was at that point when it started getting reported in the press, is when the cynicism started. That's when the media started reporting more cynical views of this. Saying. And what were those views? Well, the the. Sort of the, the commentary at the at the time of the disposal, the commentary took a form of oh, uh, the deal of the century. Wilbur Ross pulls off the deal of the century. And he contributed to that, didn't he? There were boasts from um, from some of those um, the, the the protagonists in some of those funds. Oh yeah, but that's what these billionaires do. I mean, they brag amongst themselves. So what was the, what was the what were the reported particular braggings here? Well, it, it, it is it is reported that. Um, 
at a Trump fundraiser that he he had bragged. But I think the point. But in, in particular, he he had um, he had threat. There had been a threat to sue, hadn't there? And and that had that that, that had worked for them. So they were bragging about that. Well, no, prior, the, the, that wasn't uh, Wilbur Ross himself, but they were junior bondholders that attempted to sue Bank of Ireland. But that had uh, more or less happened um, prior to Wilbur Ross disposing of his shares. Um, there was a group of junior bondholders um, led by Brian Tepper. Um, 23 of them came together and uh, launched proceedings against Bank of Ireland in the UK courts and um, Bank of Ireland back down and that that was this this was all available information in in the you know in the media okay not in the Irish media but it was all there which information that the the Bank of Ireland was being sued by private yes. equity funds but and settled rather than fight the case okay. um, so I, I'm not sure where the the, the board um, the influence there was but when those proceedings started it was never told to the AGM either mm. that these legal proceedings had were going on. And who on. should have told the AGM? Well the CEO the CEO in my in my view should have been reported Okay. because it, it was fundamental and ultimately at the end of all this there was still a very significant asset that had moved from Bank of Ireland to NAMA you know and the there's so many players and moving parts in this whole story. It, I can understand why people are, are, are struggling to stay on track with it. But they, um, ultimately, you know, the information was there. And people may not have read the accounts, may not have understood stood them. I'm not there to decide that. But what I do, what I can absolutely say for sure, is that nobody reacted. Nobody challenged the accounts at AGM because ultimately this group of five investors who opened the door to bring in all the equity funds in, okay, that, that did so well and so swiftly and so painlessly and then they all wanted it. And so predictably. Oh yes, absolutely, because they knew what they were looking for then. They and knew. because they always do this, they always somehow manage to cream off supernormal profits. Yeah, but I mean, Brian Tepper from that group of 23 that sued Bank of Ireland, well, they, they launched proceedings again. He's recorded on video um, as saying that they were, going, they were going to crush the Irish government. Okay. And it, it, like these people measure up to each other, you know, by the size of the, the number of his billion dollar estates they have and it, it, it was all publicly in public information but the, the thing the thing is when, when people weren't challenging what's going on this this is going to happen this is this this is this is why you so you think it was a culture of people who attended that AGM of shareholders who didn't ask the right questions but in particular you think the minister and were the regulators should should regulators have asked was it a role for regulators well I'm not sure regulators would have a role at AGM other than saying it's a, they can hold their AGM because I know that's what they do with credit unions credit unions can't hold their AGM until central banks say they can um, but. What I would say, what I would say here is that they only had thirty-five percent of the vote at AGM. Okay, there was sixty-five percent other vote, percentage votes there. They they could have stopped the the accounts being approved. They could have stopped. And it was in their material interest too. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, but you know, also, I mean, PwC were the auditors, 
And I mean, they, they were their order dates that I can tell from 1998 up to 2017. So were they really independent by the time 2011, 2012 came by? You know, I mean, they had been there a long time. They may have been there even as the auditors prior to the, um, um, 1998 as well. Mm -hmm. I haven't been able to go back further than that because they weren't uh, available on the uh, Bank of Ireland website. Um, but the point here is that really the information was there. And, um, when so if the country and the investors in the bank have only themselves to blame, isn't that really the, 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 the case? It was predictable that the likes of, you know, there's a clue in the name, that, 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 that Wilbur Ross would vultureize, um, you know, he'd take off his carrion and that's what he did. Well, Wilbur Ross we was one pickings. of a group. He was one of a group before and their job was to come in and they fe their job was to bail out the bailout for Michael Noonan. Because Michael Noonan's Department of Finance, they didn't do the due diligence either. They should have checked to see how much these shares were actually worth, that they were selling. Because they were my shares and they were your shares. They were the, they, Michael Noonan only held them on behalf of the Irish taxpayer. Oh, okay. And just remind us what profit was made by the five? Well, within three years, um, well, we, we, know, we know from the disposal of the shares that they bought from the minister. It was uh, just over half a billion for Wilbur Ross. As to the other transactions, because remember, they, they, did, they did own about 14% before they purchased of the Department of Finance, that okay. bunch of shares, 20.9%. So we don't know what they, what they cost or what they paid for, or, you know, I, I don't think it was much different, but ultimately we don't know. Um, but when, when Wilbur Ross exited, just under three years after, he made his half billion. Prem Watsa exited shortly after him and made another, made, made slightly more money. And his company, Fairfax, did hold a seat on the board until 2017. Um, and the others, whether they've invested out or not, I don't know. I haven't checked the shareholder register. But, you know, what, they went in to make money and came back out. They, they did their due diligence, but maybe they, uh, how that took place was that they, maybe they saw better value there. Or, or, it, it's, it's, I, I, you know, you have to be in their mindset. But, you know, um, the, 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 the suggestion of insider trading keeps traveling this. Everybody knew. Everybody knew he was not independent. And he rebutted that very um, persuasively in, in Mother it. Jones. He has rebutted it. And, you know, there, I'm not, we're not here to stand up for the legs of Wilbur Ross, but, I mean, this, this, is who, this was who was considered as value investors by okay. Bank so that, of so Ireland and... And remain, seemed the, and remain in favour, let's face it, um, with, the, with, 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 with this government. What was the effect on the, of that coup, mm -hmm. um, if I can use that phrase in the context of Trump's Minister for Commerce, um, what was the effect of that on the economy... Um, and on other banks and on, you know, on, on, on the rest of us, because the message must have go, 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 gone out clearly. Well, it did, because in 2014, Shane Ross wrote the article about this isn't turning out as sexy as you think it is for the Department of Finance. So, you know, the, it, it was, there was this feeling that um, Michael Noonan had done the country a favour and it, in fairness to Shane Ross, he did he did put up the first flare that this wasn't as good looking as you all think it is, and he he does use the expression back in twenty fourteen of vultures, 
and then coming in. So, so it opened up. So, so what was the effect of that on the economy of the of the vultures and the cuckoos? What who who, who, who took well, sucker from 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 the treatment of Ross and his acolytes? What what was the effect on the economy of opening well, up? Well, they, they took confidence, you see, because then the private equity funds all came in because they're generally the same players between all of them, and they they came in and they they knew they knew that they there was an open door here for them. They they knew there was. Um, a market here for them. They knew there was badly written loans, and maybe there was some value under the loans. But it resulted that they in could make money on in a securitization economy, which results in things like, in a very tangible way, that properties aren't available to um, individuals to buy in this city, because a lot of them are being sold to um, to vulture funds that, um, that 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 securitize them. So there are very tangible knock-on effects that we that we invited in and. Well, I think we have to accept those influences. We have to accept the responsibility that they were invited in. And what, what was and the effect? They were made feel very welcome here, and they made a lot of money here. And we never challenged them. We never challenged them. We didn't put up a fight against Brian Tepper and all those funds in in London, in the Chancery Courts. There, um, you know, Michael Noonan is able to drag you know a sick woman through the court, Bridget McCall, but he wasn't prepared to fight. You know, the Brian Tepper and his mates in London. So I mean, maybe if we, if there was pushback there, or if there was more pushback along the way. I mean, the only voice really was Shane Ross in and around 24 and Nama Winelake. And what was the effect on banking? Banking changed dramatically because the regulations changed and the enforcement from the the central bank um, is a lot tighter. It's a, um, and of course. Actually, banking regulation has changed around the world as well now, with money laundering legislation being a lot stricter. Um, I, I think I think that what happened in Ireland is that we 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 we've given too much space and they've allowed too much space for private equity to be established. And the banks have got used to not lending to to, to ordinary people. Well, I think they're just probably more nervous. I don't, I, I don't know why they're not lending because they have massive cash reserves, which they should really be lending out. You know, that's how banks make money. So tell us then the effect of the um, the, the the of what happened in Bank of Ireland on on the rest of us. Well, the interesting thing is that Bank of Ireland um, actually has turned itself around. Whether well, the you know if you were to read the press, they would say it's oh it was Richie Butcher was the star. And it was his relationship with Wilbur Ross that helped him turn the company, you know, as a bank around. And I would say yes, the accounts do say that um, when Richie Butcher came in as CEO, he has turned it around um, enormously. But I think the, the premise of my story is with Village is that um, when, when those shares, when 35% of the bank became under the control of five different massive private equity funds whose only job is to make money, not to run companies, not to run banks. Um, and when, when that market, that opened up, that, that showed Ireland was a gateway for private equity investment. And they came in and short afterwards, as these were making money and it was working out so well, you know, it brought in all the other sort of the smaller funds and they came in and they do not care about their PR. They're only interested in money. So they don't care how grubby it got evicting people out of apartment blocks 
or um, buying Scruffland and for nothing or taking over loans that were now unsecured because they'd already seized the, 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 the land or whatever and pursuing the original borrower, you know, still for the full sum. So there was a claim, a claim, a change in the ethos in the financial sector. Well, I don't know if there was ever any ethos. It was always about making money. I mean, you can go back to the 80s here and banks, Irish banks were always ripping off their customers. Terrible record. Of, you know, they were, they were never saints anyway. Um, but I, I, think, I think private equity have found a way to settle in here and make money. They know the system. They know how okay. it works. So you see this as a, as a primary manifestation of um, endemic governance failures that are ongoing. Tell us um, about that. Well, I think ultimately this proved without a doubt that there was no independence in the decision making within Bank of Ireland. There was no independence on the board because there were large in institutional shareholders control the vote of board. The minister's office nominated directors to the board you know and there was zero independence the auditors that we know uh, were pwc for far too long there was zero independence and you know if you need to be if, if governance and your board of directors or any board of directors has to be allowed to do its job properly and on behalf of the entity number one and the shareholders and the other stakeholders it has to be independent so who should uh, move to change that well i think government has to change that because so some of the most important institutions in the state let's just say bank of ireland rte central bank which is a commission all right most of those appointments are completed by the relevant minister and it, even the ad with state boards actually does say the minister seeks to appoint. There is no public demonstration that, that, that the candidates need to be independent, that they need to be free from any political connection or um, long-term long service. I know of an insurance company that where the chair has been involved with the company for 40 years. That is not independence. Conflict of interest arises across so many different um, methods, let's just say. One of them is familiarity. If you're there too long, you are no longer capable of making independent decisions because you're too familiar with the ways and means and how things are around there and the people involved. Fee influence is another one, which is another pro reason we should look at how we are major companies and institutions engage the big four because of fee influence too much too a too big a percentage of their fees rely on the state okay you know and is there any sign that we've learned lessons since the crash no no i actually think um you see less and less independence um on display and independent thinking and independent governance um and ethics, I think ethics has got, as a standard and an ideal, there's no effort to make it an, um, a, a practice that even politicians are prepared to work towards. Okay, very good. Um, thank you very much for a very clear exposition of how the vultures um, swooped in and changed the, um, the economy of this country and the lives of many of us. Um, and we'll have a follow-up piece in our um, forthcoming edition in June, hopefully from you. So thank you very much, Vanessa. Mm -hmm.